Uh, as I mentioned, this is the first week of Advent, the beginning of one of the, one of the holiest stretches in our church calendar. And along with Easter, the Christmas season is a time of deep meaning for those of us who follow Jesus. We see it on the banners. I've mentioned it several times already in this service, but it's a time of hope and peace and joy and love. It's a time of eager anticipation for the arrival and re-arrival of Jesus, uh, the Christ. Throw in all the lovely little extra pagan influences, uh, like Christmas trees and hoof prints on rooftops and hearts that grow three sizes and um, the greatest blessing of the holiday season, which is Ferrero Rocher. Oh, I love Ferrero Rocher. Put it all together and you've got plenty of reasons to celebrate. Christmas is, it's meaningful, it's beautiful, it's powerful, but I've got a confession to make. Even though this is the first Sunday of Advent, this is not a Christmas message. It's not a Christmas message at all. There's no wise men, no Bethlehem, no star of wonder or star of light or even star of royal beauty bright. This is not a Christmas message. I'm sorry if that disappoints you. That said, even though it's not a Christmas message at all, I do happen to have a Christmas present here, wrapped and ready. Um, Remember, this is not a Christmas message. I wonder, would anybody like to receive this free Christmas gift? Would anybody like this gift? Okay, well, come on up, Sharon. Yep. Come and get it. Well, we'll have to see, won't we? Yeah, come on up and claim your gift. Thank you. You bet. (laughs) You know what? I'll just hang on to it. It's Ferrero Rocher. Yeah, it's Ferrero Rocher. It's my favorite, so I'll, I'll just hang on to it. No, she didn't come up to get it. You've got to come up and make an effort. And then, well, still don't get it. But I, I promise you, usually I'm not this p- possessive with gifts. Usually I'll let go after the second or third tug. But uh, for Sharon, no, not happening. But I, I, think, I think that this is how we view our relationship with God. He has all these great gifts for, ready for us, uh, ready to go, ready to give to us. And no, I'm not talking about gifts like Christmas gifts like chocolate and trinkets. He has better gifts. He's not worried about things. He doesn't have a lot to say about stuff other than to warn us that grasping onto our stuff is idolatrous. He was a homeless former refugee. He was a penniless pilgrim rabbi. He, stuff is not high on his list of priorities. So when I talk about great gifts ready for us, I'm not necessarily talking about material things. The harder we grasp our possessions, the the less willing and less able we are to grasp onto the servant king who gives us the kind of gifts that we truly need, the the kind that we need in our heart, in our identity, those kinds of gifts, the, the kind of gifts that can change the world, and if not the world, then at least the people in your immediate sphere, in your world, the kind of gifts that bring light, the light of his kingdom down to our dark frozen, broken world that he calls us to shine into. Those kinds of gifts he's ready to give to us. God doesn't want your bank account full, which is good news for those of us at Christmas time as the MasterCard bill gets bigger and bigger and the bank account gets less and less. But God doesn't necessarily want your bank account full. He wants your hearts full, brimming over, in fact, with his hope and his peace and his joy and his love. Those are the kinds of good gifts that he's interested in giving. But wait, sorry, this is beginning to sound like a Christmas message. So it's not a Christmas message. So let me back up. We tend to view our relationship with the Almighty God in the same way as my relationship with Sharon here, 
who walked away empty-handed. We know that our God is way up there, and we are way down here. And we think we have to work our way up to where God is if we want to get anything from him. And we worry sometimes, lots of the times, that we're not working hard enough to get those gifts. And then we think, even if we do our best, even if we follow the rules, even if we take those few steps like Sharon did up here to receive her gift, even if we take those steps, that maybe he isn't really interested in handing his gifts over to us in the first place. Why would he give me these gifts? Maybe, we think, maybe we aren't worthy of grace. Maybe we aren't deserving of forgiveness. Maybe we aren't eligible for his unending and unbounding and unlimited love. Maybe we need to grasp onto things instead. Maybe we need to grasp onto our worthless self-image and cower down here in fear of what God will do to us because we're so unworthy. Or maybe we need to grasp onto our own pride and our own self-serving independence and say to God, you know what, I don't even want your stupid gifts anyway. I'm happy with what I've got down here. Maybe we need to grasp onto our privilege and our power and our possessions and wring what pleasure we can out of them before we die. Maybe we need to grasp and grasp and grasp onto whatever we can control because we don't trust his gifts or maybe we don't trust that he will actually trust us with his gifts. So we grasp and grasp onto what we have and what we can see and feel and what we can control. Or maybe, just maybe, we need to stop grasping and let go. Like Elsa. Have you seen Frozen? She's all about let it go. But that's a winter movie. It's not a Christmas movie. So this is still not a Christmas message. And if we were to stop grasping onto everything that we can see and feel, if we were to stop grasping onto, there's two lies that we tend to grasp onto, big picture lies. One lie is the overinflated, prideful sense of self-worth that tells us we're the most important part of creation. In fact, we are the center of creation. And we cling to ourselves as the center of creation. Or the equally destructive lie that deflated, unlovable sense of self-worth that tells us that no one in creation could ever care about us because we're unworthy of that care. Both are lies. And we tend to grasp to either at different times. Just this week, I saw myself grasp tightly to both of those. An inflated sense of importance and a completely deflated sense of self-worth. If we were able to stop grasping and we're able to simply let go of all the incomplete and untrue identities that we conjure for ourselves, if we were able to step forward in faith and obedience, well, we'd be in some pretty excellent company to take those steps of faith and obedience. In fact, we'd be in the most excellent company to stop grasping, to let go and step forward. We'd be in the most excellent company. Our passage today is one that we're very familiar with. In fact, it was the centerpiece of a recent eight-month study that we just completed in August. It's not a Christmas passage, so it's not the first couple chapters in Matthew or Luke or the first chapter in John, because this is not a Christmas message. Okay? Okay. So instead, it's the second book, second chapter of the book of Philippians, which is one of the most, contains one of the most shocking statements about Christ ever made. And it goes like this. I appreciate that you're turning in your Bibles. I love when we actually use our Bibles in church. I also have it here for you if you want to read it here. But this is um, chapters or verses 5 to 10 of Philippians 2. And this is from the NIV. It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped 
but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, even if we hadn't just completed an entire series on this book of the Bible, you'd almost certainly have heard this poem. I touch on this poem, it feels like every third or fourth sermon I do. I mention some aspect of Philippians chapter 2. It, it's incredibly foundational and instructive to me and who I am. And so as I preach, I, I refer to it all the time. And it was the centerpiece of our study of Philippians. But despite that, perhaps it's lost some of its power. So we're going to look at it a little closer. The whole thing starts out, despite what my English teacher taught me to do when I'm writing, you never do this, but Paul does this, starts at the climax. He starts at the high point. Jesus is God himself, sharing his very nature. Now, that's the kind of statement we looked at when we studied Philippians. That's the kind of statement that got Jesus crucified by the Jewish leaders and got following generations of Christians crucified by the Roman leaders. It was a dangerous statement to make. Jesus is God himself, especially in Philippi, where Caesar was zealously worshipped as a god. Caesar was Lord in Philippi, and all other lords had to bow before Caesar. And if you worship those other lords, you could be put to death, which is exactly what faced the Philippians. But the splendor and extravagance and brutality of Caesar isn't what God looks like. That's not who God is. It's not the king on the throne of the most powerful empire Earth had ever known up to that point who reflects true, identi- or true divinity. Instead, it's the king on the cross who truly shows what God is like. And so Paul begins with the climax. Jesus is God himself. The same God who created the cosmos with merely a word. The same God who birthed his people through the split waves of the Red Sea. The same God who guides his people with fire and cloud and commands his people from quaking mountaintops. That's the same God. The same God chose to contain himself in all the fallen, failing, fallible flesh of human existence. From speaking creation into being to speaking truth to outcasted Samaritan adulterers at the town well. From parting mighty seas to sleeping in a boat while the storm tosses him around on one. Seems like a step down, doesn't it? From guiding nations with massive pillars of fire to guiding humble peasants with tiny stories of mustard seeds and lost coins and sorted sheep. From expounding law from the mountaintop to being executed on one. That's the same being. That's the same God in both sides of those dot, dot, dots. From great and mighty powerful acts to small and still mighty powerful acts. Jesus was God with flesh on, as it says in John 1.14. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And that, by the way, John 1.14 is my favorite Christmas verse, which is purely coincidental because this is not a Christmas message. But God became flesh through Jesus Christ. What does he do with his fleshy, earthy human existence? Does he supplant Caesar from his throne? Does he raise up a mighty conquering army? Does he wrap himself in elegance and splendor and extravagance? Does he bend humanity to his every whim and desire? Does he, does he take on flesh? Does Jesus dwell among us, take on flesh, and establish himself over us in a position of dominance and control? No. 
When he dwells with us, he dwells with us. He dwells among us in the language of John 1. He makes himself nothing in the language of Philippians 2. In other words, he refused to grasp. He had ultimate authority and sovereign power at his disposal, and he lets it go. He sets it aside. He doesn't grasp his equality with God. He gives up his equality with God. It's the first of two massive sacrifices that Jesus makes on our behalf. The more famous sacrifice is the second sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of accepting death on the cross. But before that sacrifice could be made, there was the initial sacrifice of accepting life as a fallen, fallible, fleshy human. Before death was a sacrifice for Jesus, life itself was a sacrifice for Jesus, becoming one of us, allowing himself to be subjected to the blood and sweat and tears of humanity. That was an enormous act of willful sacrifice in and of itself, to be God and to contain himself in something that looks like this. What a sacrifice that is. Death isn't his only sacrifice. Coming to life as a human is an enormous sacrifice. And he made it willingly because he refused to grasp onto the rights and privileges that come with being God's only firstborn son. Instead, he allowed himself to be born in a filthy cave to an impoverished couple who wrapped him in dirty rags and who would soon flee as refugees to Egypt. But that's the Christmas story. Sorry, my bad. As I mentioned, I gave this message yesterday at an event in Athabasca. I've always thought Athabasca to be a truly beautiful town. In fact, just in September, Angie and I and the girls, we drove, we wove our way through the dirt roads to Athabasca to have a donair. Um, It's a beautiful town. And I wondered about those Athabascans who probably drive past Clyde a few times a month on their way to Edmonton. And I wonder, do they ever stop in Clyde or think about Clyde on their way by? Clyde is no Athabasca with its delicious burger baron and its beautiful riverfront parks, and its post-secondary institution. We don't really have any of those things. So most people would probably never think to stop in and visit the village of Clyde, which is a shame because they'd miss out on seeing what the Rimmer Boys and I call Dead Tree Park, which is this empty lot right over here with a single barely clinging to life tree in it, um, beside the bar and across the road from the burned-down hotel. Sounds picturesque, I know. And they'd miss it. It's a, they would miss Clyde. The beauty of Athabasca, those beautiful Athabascans are missing out on the glory of Clyde if they don't stop in. And of course, I'm being sarcastic. Clyde isn't as delightful as Athabasca. It's definitely not. The closest thing we have to the Athabasca River is Lake Wakameo, which is unswimmable because of fertilizer runoff. Not quite the same. So I, I wouldn't blame the Athabascans who live in relative paradise for not stopping to stoop down and enter the village of Clyde, Alberta. Well, in this exaggerated story, the glory of heaven is Athabasca, and the painful, dirty reality of humankind is Clyde. And there goes Jesus, strolling right through Dead Tree Park with us, exercising on those weird adult exercise equipments at the park, uh, hanging out at the torn-down skating rink, all the, the symbols of... Clyde just not quite having it all. There's Jesus hanging out in all those places with all these people. Stooping to our level. Letting go of his entitlements as son of the most high God. He refused to grasp. Instead, he gave. 
He didn't look into the eyes of the lowly and the hurting and the sinful and demand, don't you know who I am? Instead, he says, I do know who you are. And I love you. I love who you are. I value who you are. He calls prostitutes his daughters. He calls lepers his friends. And he calls widows his role models. All the small, outcasted, broken people that nobody, no respecting person in society would have anything to do with, those are the people Jesus was drawn to. And those are the people that he elevated. Just like it says in Mary's prayer or song of praise in Luke 1, what does he do with the humble? He raises them up. He elevates their status and at the same time tears down the status of the proud and the corrupt. He cares for those small, hurting, broken people. He cares for them. He shows compassion on them. He welcomes them. He even washes their feet. In other words, he serves them. As it says in Philippians 2, takes the very nature of a slave. He doesn't meet the small and the sick and the sinful and demand their allegiance. He didn't then and he doesn't do that now. He doesn't grab us by the neck and say, follow me, follow me now. Don't you know who I am? I wish he would do that sometimes to me. Grab me by the throat and slap me around a little. And maybe from time to time you felt like he's done exactly that thing. But that's not his style. He doesn't demand. Instead, he earns our allegiance by refusing to grasp what is rightfully his. Our God is not a grasper. It's not his nature. Our king doesn't grasp onto his rights. Instead, he gives. He forfeits his rights. And then he gives those rights to others, to you and to I. Our king doesn't grasp onto his glory. He forfeits it, and he invites us to taste that glory for ourselves. Our king doesn't grasp onto peace. He forfeits peace. He took on a tumultuous life. He died a brutal death. He doesn't grasp onto peace. He forfeits and then gives that peace to us, along with hope, along with joy, along with love. He gives all of those things, all the greatest gifts that we can experience, all the most fulfilling and beautiful and life-changing things we can experience, we can experience fully in him because he refuses to grasp onto it for himself. He begins as equal to God. That's the climax. But he doesn't consider that something to grasp onto, that equality with God. So he becomes human, which is a huge step down. But not just any human, he makes himself into a slave, a suffering servant to the poor and lonely and outcasted people around the globe. He's a tireless doctor for those who know that they're sick. He's a slave to us, me, you. He relinquishes the nature of Almighty God and chooses the nature of a servant, which, by the way, spoiler alert, is the nature of Almighty God. If Jesus is God incarnate, which he is, then God himself is a servant. That's his nature. But it goes further than that. Than that. Not only did God become human, and not only did God become a servant to other lowly humans, but God himself, creator and sustainer of all life on earth, humbled himself to the point of death. He becomes a slave to death. But if you can believe it, and Paul throws an exclamation point on this, not just a slave to death, but it gets lower than that. Not only human, not only servant, not only death, but the lowest, most humiliating, most despicable form of death that the ruthless Romans could conjure up. Death on a cross. A slow, agonizing death reserved for the most violent rebels and the most worthless slaves. That was Jesus' identity at the point of death. A rebel, for loving people, and worthless because he loved the people that he loved.
a rebel and a slave. Jesus gave up divine glory to live as a servant to lowly humans and to die as a slave at the hands of those same lowly humans. He could have grasped, but instead he gave. And he gave, and he gave, and he gave, and he continues to give all the greatest gifts that we could need or desire. Gifts that bring hope, like the star that guides us to his presence. Gifts that bring joy, like the story that we're going to look at next week, the story of Simeon who waited his whole life to see the baby Messiah. And when he sees Jesus, he rejoices. He takes the baby up in his arms and rejoices. He even says, now I can die in peace. He celebrates that he gets to hold the Messiah in his arms. What a beautiful joy. Gifts that bring peace, like the resounding multitudes of angels announcing that the arrival of the Messiah shows how God is drawing even humble shepherds to himself. It's not announced to the kings. It's not announced to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. It's announced to the regular folk in the fields that God is showing favor, giving peace on on whom his favor rests. And on whom does his favor rest? The shepherds. Gifts that bring love like a faithful, impoverished teen mom smiling down on the beautiful life that she's brought into this ugly, unfair world. In all the darkness of everything around her, she smiles down at her baby. That kind of love. Those are the gifts he brings, the gifts of Emmanuel, God with us. And did you hear that? God with us, not God above us, not God frowning over us, not God who forces perfection upon us, not God reluctant to offer grace and forgiveness and compassion because he barely tolerates us, but God with us, God beside us, God within us, not demanding that we shamefully drag ourselves all the way up here like I made Sharon walk all the way up to me to get her gift. God doesn't do that with his gifts. He doesn't shame us and make us perp walk our way all the way up to where he is only to withhold those good things from us. That's not the God he is. Instead, he's a God who's right there beside us. And the Holy Spirit takes things a step further. He's right there inside us. He's a God who stoops down to us as our servant king, who invites us to accept all his many gifts, and who rejoices when we actually open them. Because it's one thing to get a gift. It's another thing to open it and be thankful for it. A God who calls us to share those same gifts with his fellow children, which, by the way, is the entire context of Philippians 2. The context of Philippians 2 is having the same giving, not grasping attitude with the brothers and sisters around us. Have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Paul says, make my joy complete. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, that's where he starts. If you want to live like Jesus, you start with unity. That's how, where you start. You start with a love that brings unity. That's the context of Philippians 2. That's the beautiful purpose of church. That's why we exist, is for that exact same purpose, to give to one another and not grasp from one another, to come together under the banner of the servant king and to declare that he is with us. And us, like each of us individually, he is with us, but just as importantly, he is with us communally. The church is not a bunch of individuals. It's members of a body shared body and he is with us together he is he's ready to give light in our darkness and to fill us with the love that brings him glory and of course what's the end result of all the refusal to grasp and all his desire to give the end result is glory like we just said 
you have to read the next three verses in Philippians 2. You can't stop just at verse, uh, where did I stop? Verse 8. You have to read 9 to 11, which says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's the point of all this. Glory. Down he went. From God to human to servant to crucified slave. But just as quickly, God raised him up to the highest place. And from that high place, and with the name above all names, he still tirelessly and happily gives good gifts to those who seek him. Gifts like hope and peace and joy and love. And for those who are truly blessed, Ferrero Rocher. Which reminds me, Sharon. Notice I didn't make Sharon come up to get it. I took that gift down to her. And that's what our God is all about. He doesn't grasp. He comes down and he gives. He dwells among. He shares. And he gives. So, see, that wasn't a Christmas message at all. Nothing Christmassy about any of that. Let's pray. Father God, as we begin Advent season, the season of hope, we are so thankful that you are a God who gives and doesn't grasp. Jesus, we we know that the sacrifice you made um, on the cross is what gives us peace with God, but we also know that the sacrifice you made in coming to earth at all also gives us hope, gives us peace, joy, and love. We thank you for all the ways that you fill us with hope and peace and joy and love, and I pray that you would fill us until we overflow, that we brim over with your good gifts, and, and that it spills out into the community around us. I thank you that you are not just with us individually, you are with all of us together as brothers and sisters in your family. I pray that you continue to fill us with those good gifts. I pray that we wouldn't be graspers, that we also would be givers. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. He refused to grasp. Instead, he gave. And there goes Jesus strolling right through Dead Tree Park with us. But that's the Christmas story. Sorry, my bad.